as an Indigenous person, at times people want access to Indigenous community. And when you do those things, you're opening the door to strangeness. Uh, You know what? If I'm working and teaching summer school and paying for it on my own, I am in control of my project. I'm in control of how long I stay there, who I'm seeing, where I'm going. I felt that was more empowering than waiting for acceptance from whoever is deciding who gets these things. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Hilsenbrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the field of print media and multiples. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. If you are looking to add some pizzazz to your practice, check out their new line of additive glitter. Add a sprinkle of their additive glitter to any Speedball fabric screen printing ink to bring a touch of shimmer to your next design. This glitter additive can be used in nearly any ratio, whether your sparkling vision is more subtle or dripping with scintillating shine. Check out the link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Legion Paper. Legion is a fine art paper company representing the best papers in the world. They either stock it, source it, or make it. With brands like Stonehenge, Somerset, Coventry, Reeves, Arches, and more, Legion is the best paper resource for every artist and printmaker's needs. Learn more about the variety of paper Legion stocks at www.legionpaper.com. My guest this week is Melanie Yazzie, head of printmaking at the University of Colorado Boulder. We talk about growing up in the Navajo Nation and how Melanie learned about studio practice from watching her grandmother prepare for weaving. How she started working and traveling on her own dime when she wasn't getting the residency she wanted. The incredible places around the world she's now traveled. And how showing up authentically with the people in your life and the people that you meet can lead to wonderful opportunities. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to be present with Melanie Yazzie. Hi, Melanie. How's it going? Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you. Oh, thank you so much for joining me. I feel like we've, this has been for both of us, like a a hard one, you know, moment to sit down together. We've had car issues and tech issues, and we've been talking about it for months, and I'm so happy that we're finally here together. Me too. I, I, I love the whole idea of just speaking about printmaking and art processes and all of all of the things that we're going to do. So I've been really looking forward to this. Oh, I'm so glad. So before we get into all of my questions here, would you introduce yourself and just let people know just that basic questions of like who you are, where you are, and what it is that you do? My name's Melanie Yazzie, and I am of the saltwater clan born for the bitterwater clan. My maternal grandfather's clan is Edgewater. My paternal grandfather's clan is Red Streak into the water. And that's that's how I stand in this world as a uh, Diné Navajo Nation person. And, and then in this outside world, of, I guess, academia. I'm the head of printmaking at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And I've been here since 2006. So I think it's 16 years. Before this time, I taught at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Before that, over one of those years, I taught at Boise State in Idaho, which was really amazing. And Before U of A, I taught at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe for six years, right right after graduate school. Oh, yeah. So it's all of that. And then just being Native American and Navajo that that makes me who I am or or builds me into the person I've I've become. Beautiful, beautiful. That's so interesting. I feel like we've we've got 
some connections from all those institutions. I, I lived in Santa Fe until very recently and got to know uh, IAIA there really well. And I went to the University of Arizona in Tucson. And then my brother and sister-in-law both did their PhDs at UC Boulder, not in art and philosophy, but I've, I've, I've walked on the campuses you've walked on. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. And so where did you grow up and what role did art play? in that part of your life? I grew up on the Navajo reservation. I guess the Navajo nation is what most people call it now. It's in the four corners regions of Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and oh my gosh, Utah. Mm -hmm. And anyhow, the four corners area helped form who, who I am being Navajo is at the, the base and foundation of how I place myself. My Both of my grandmothers were traditional Navajo weavers and my grandmother on my mother's side, um, I spent most of my time with her as a child. And she, I believe it's through that indirectly that I directly and indirectly really learned about studio time because she would um, prepare her weavings and go through this process of getting ready to do her weaving. And everyone respected that, I guess, studio practice. And it taught me at a young age, like what one needs to go through to, to get prepared to make work. And, and the respect that the family had for her art practice, I think over time I started to realize that was informing why and who I am and being around that at such a young age and the dis- the discipline that she had with her weaving practice was really incredible because it was what brought money in to the family and she would weave a rug and then we would take it into Gallup and then we'd later in the day be driving home in a new truck. So you could see the value of, of her work and what it would bring. And so That's something that I think a lot of people don't understand. I think people see me and don't know that part of my childhood. My grandparents both spoke Navajo on my mom's side, and pretty much that's all they spoke. And I grew up around that at a young age, just being with them. And and I think just seeing the world through their eyes, appreciating the mornings and appreciating animals and out the outdoors, it started at that place. And so when I look at the work that I make now, it all comes from that time period. And I'm, I'm not sure if I'm even answering your question. I, once I start talking about family or I feel comfortable enough to share some of that, it's really hard to separate that from who I am as an artist. Yeah, I know. I think that's a a beautiful answer to the question because I'm always interested in when artists are young and they're really coming to understand that making and and visual communication and craftsmanship and as you spoke to discipline and what it is to have a studio practice, that's such a world that I think so many of us, it's the water that we swim in now, but not everybody is exposed to it. Not everyone grows up with it. And then sometimes people learn it, you know, not until graduate school or even after. And so- I think you you answered the question wonderfully when you said that you grew up seeing people in your family, the women in your family, already doing that and already being a part of that of that practice. So yeah, did did you learn weaving at all? Did they share that art with you? It wasn't something that that I ever strived to learn. Like I was around it, I appreciate it, I collect it, but it was never something that I tried and. It goes into other, I always tell people when they ask me that question that I did a story on the moth and it really speaks about, so I'm not going to go into that. I would say, listen to the moth story because it's, it's pretty emotional and, and it ties directly into this question of my choice of what I do now. I think when I was growing up, my parents saw and supported a lot of artists in our community on the Navajo Nation. And it's that whole thing that we, the stereotype that we all grow up with, that artists 
are like starving and don't have money. And so it was never really encouraged. And I think it was one of the things that I saw a lot at the Institute of American Indian Arts is that people had a hard time choosing art as Native Americans because in my mind and in my heart, I feel like most Native Americans somehow within us, there is this creative spirit and ease with creativity and and making beauty. And, and because it's part of the way we walk in this world and it's it's part of how we're taught from a very young age i think at times because it's it's something so normal at times i think our community sometimes undervalues the role of an artist and so when people in my from my community at times choose the path of being an artist it's a really difficult one because everyone's like well yeah every we can all make drawings, we can all make stuff. And that's nice. And because everybody is inherently talented with it. So, so once one from my community at times chooses to be an artist, it's, there's a lot of struggle that happens to choose that path. And there's all these questions that we've asked ourselves of like, why do I want this? What, where is it going to take me? And, and I find the meaning and the direction of the work, I think ultimately ties to community and history. And so a lot of times when I was teaching at the Institute of American Indian Arts, the level of conversation and understanding and the, the heart of what a lot of the work was about was super meaningful. And it, it, it brings up a lot of things for me, these, these different questions. And again, I'm, I'm, when I'm answering your questions, I'm trying to think of what does somebody in their studio want to listen to and want to hear with all of this. And I know when I'm working in the studio and listening to either music or different things, I'm, I'm wondering about some of these things we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so in that context, you said that to choose to become an artist might bring up other questions. What was your personal journey like then to choose to become an artist or, or to follow this pull that you felt towards making and visual communication and art and the artist's life? I think from a very early age, I was really just I love creating and making things like I would sew things together, little sock critters. I, I was always like looking forward to art class in grade school and I would spend a lot of time. And I always remember my teachers being really supportive and like excited when I would create things. And, and their response was always like, oh my gosh, this is so different. And for me, I just thought I love this and great. And, and I, it was strange because I remember there were different people who had really strong comments of like support and praise, but the way that I understood it in myself was that I love this and I'm going to keep making it. And I wasn't really surprised by it. And, and so that's why when in my adult life or as I've gone through life as an artist and people have told me or asked me about an artist block, I have not really experienced that. I remember the first time I experienced it was after my mom passed away from COVID in 2020. There were a couple of months that I just was blank. I just, I just couldn't make and I think it was just deep, deep grief. And, and then I, then I was able to move past it and start creating based off of some drawing, a drawing that my mother and my grandmother did. And, and then I was able to move forward. But before that, and since that time, like I've always been able to create and I've not had that, that artist block. If anything, in my younger years, the artist block was that weird thing that we all, I don't know if it's all of us, but this the weird thing that I went through of thinking that artists have to make art in a certain way or it has to be, painting was something that you had to learn in a certain way. Like everything I felt had 
like a recipe or a got or proper ways to do it. So it limited me, my own, my own interpretation of what art making was, was limiting me. And when I got to the point where I started making art, like in printmaking and ceramics and drawing and like all these different things, I realized that I was the one holding myself back because I just wasn't, I had thought that you had to take a class in painting to learn to paint. But I think one of the most beautiful things I learned was from my husband, Clark Barker. He had taken a painting class with Harmony Hammond at the University of Arizona in in Tucson. And he said, I said, when you were taking the class with Harmony Hammond, like, what was it like? He was like, I loved it. He said, the best thing that she said to us was, you learn how to paint by painting. Mm. Just do it. Just make it. Like, and and he said that some people were wanting, like, I guess the Bob Ross method of like, this is how you paint a tree. And right, right. Here's the foolproof method. Right. Yeah. And yeah. she was her method was that you paint. You paint a paint and you learn from the process of painting. And and somehow when I heard that, I just was like, Holy crap, I like I can paint. And I just started I painted before that sort of in secret and in hiding, but then I just really went into it and and owned it. And, and I think that's something that as artists, somehow we keep ourselves in that space of like, it has to be done a certain way. And, and when I teach, I know that there's a foundation of how you begin teaching your students different things. And I tell them there, there's a certain way that I'm going to teach you how to do a relief print or how to do a monotype. And this is the process for this class, but there's a million ways to do all of this. It's all been done before. And I said, I, I grew up in a time period where sometimes faculty would say, this is the only way to do it. I said, but I've learned mm-hmm. in my lifetime that there's hundreds of ways to do things. And your job is to learn with someone. And I said, the reason I want you to stay on a certain path is that when you do run into a problem, if you're all following the same path that I'm showing you, that I can help you resolve it because we're all on the same path. But if everyone's on a separate path, it makes it a lot harder to get you to learn the basics. And then I said, once you learn the basics and you know how to do certain things, then the doors get open and then you're trusted to experiment with all these things. And anyhow, so that whole thing of of how you make art and how you become comfortable with making it, I often will tell people it's really in your own mind we lock ourselves into thinking it's supposed to be a certain way. And, and there, I don't know, there, there's so much I can say about how, how you move forward in your path as an artist. And when I work with my students or graduate students about their path, one of the biggest things that I, I tell people is how I practice is that I just make and make, like I find my path through the process of making. And that if if I have, if somebody is experiencing an artist block, I say, then you need to just keep creating. Even if you make something bad, you're going to find something good in that terrible thing that you're doing. Sometimes you just have to do the stupid things, the silly things that don't make any sense or that are cute and fun. And then as you're working through it, you come upon an idea or something that will lead you into a new direction. But Mm. sitting and saying, I have an artist block and not making anything. I don't, for me, it just, I, I don't get that. I always say just continue making. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That like the, the practice is the medicine and and it will, it will, it will show you through. It will. It, I, I just, I don't know. And I tell people at times, if you're not like interested in the practice and if you don't have have that method, you will twirl and spin in that weird artist block place. And I always I try to say at times with students or different people I work with, it's like an athlete training. They have to do sprints, crunches, push ups, like all these different things. And that's what your daily studio practice is, is to go in there and do those things to keep yourself fit. And, and, and when you're at a point, like when 
uh, athletes reach that point where they're, they're not able to get beyond a certain place. They try something completely new or like they may be doing too much strength training. So then they'll do bicycling or they'll do something else and it'll get them out of that place. And I, I feel it's the same for artists. Like if you're so much in a place and, and you're feeling stuck, like try something else, try another process, go take a hike, take a break and then come back to it. And, and then like set a, a goal for yourself. Like I'm going to do 40 gesture drawings, or I'm going to do this thing. And then as you're going through the sit-ups of your assignment, mm-hmm. you, you, you realize like, oh my gosh, I, I could be doing this or that. And, and it helps you move forward. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. In, in your own narrative in your, in your life and, and, and how you became the artist that you are, when did you discover printmaking? When was that introduced to you? And, and was it love at first sight or did it take a little bit longer? I, my sophomore year of high school, I left the Navajo nation and went to a Quaker boarding school in the East coast. It was a school called Westtown school outside of Philadelphia and it was at Westtown that I had this amazing roommate. Her name was Haynes Sprunt. She's a poet and an artist. And she she's passed away some years ago, but she was taking an art class at Westtown. And I remember she played the violin and I would go and listen to her play that. And then she came back from this art studio at one point and she had these drawings on this paper and it had this smell. And I said, what, what is that? And she said, they're etchings. And I, I said, but this paper, it's like so soft. And I, I smelled the ink and I just was like amazed. And Mm. they were realistic drawings of these shells and they were so beautiful. And and she said, yeah, I did this in my art class. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, I want I want to do that. Like, what is this? And that was a sophomore year. And I didn't take an art class till my senior year because I wanted to get all my requirements out of the way and then be able to focus on it. So I always work towards like, I'm going to take an art class and I'm not as good as her. So I'm not going to waste my time trying to take it now I'll take it later so then I think it was during my senior year I signed up and took art classes and my art teacher Caroline Luce was just like oh my gosh like you really love this and I said yes and I want to can what else can I do to be in the studio and so she said well you could have a work study to help clean the studio and come in on the weekends and so then I took on that job and I was just like this place like I cleaned out the sinks with a little razor blade to Mm. get all the paint out. And just like, it was like a place of worship for me. I just thought this is amazing. And then I started making art pieces and following assignments. And I remember my teacher, Caroline, saying to me, like, why haven't you taken an art class? Like, you obviously just love this. And I said, well, my roommate was Haynes Sprunt. And she's just like, amazing. Like, I could never. And she said, Yazi, like Keynes has been making art since she's been a kid. Her both her parents are artists and like you should never compare yourself to anybody else. Never. Everybody has a different way of making things and like you will find your own way. And I I'd never heard that before. I just I started to like just see things like each of the assignments. And to this day, like, it's funny because I'll have students who are like, I already did that assignment or I, I already, I don't need to do this or that. And I'm, and I always tell them, I've actually done these assignments like 50 times. And like each time I do it, I love it. And I don't care if it's a gesture drawing or a two point, three point perspective. Like I see it and I, I tell myself, look at this. It's just so amazing that I can do this thing and and I can see it in a new way each time and and I I think at times when I've had people say to me how do you know you're an artist and I'm like well when you can take basic assignments and do them 15 or 20 times Mm -hmm. and you're still just like hungry to do it like you're hooked like you are you are definitely an artist because like 
only an artist is just going to love it. I mean, I think it's the same way with cooks. Cooks can like scramble an egg or make an omelet or make the most basic thing and do it in such a beautiful way. People who are in sports, like they've run tons of marathons, but each time they do it, they're doing it. They're getting in touch with a different part of their body. They're, they're like seeing it in different ways. So when, when students say to me like, Oh, I don't want to do that assignment. I already know how to do a one color print or I don't need to do positive negative. And I'm, I say to them, if you can find your way to make it exciting each time, that's a path of an artist because like, if you're bored of it, this, like you've done it twice if you're choosing this life and you want to teach art making or you want to make this, you're going to be doing this for the next 30 or 40 years. How can you be bored at this point? Like this is the most beautiful thing in the world. And they're like, you're crazy. I said, I must be because I teach this every semester and I'm excited each time. And when you discover these things, like I see the beauty in it, you need to see the beauty in learning and 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 like practicing these basic things because that that's our path as an artist is to do that I'm really loving this because how the conversation's been going is I've been like asking you a question about you specifically and then you'll answer it but then you take the specific out into these just pearls of wisdom I can see I can see the teacher in you coming out in this really beautiful way as as we Aww. talk about all these different things it's great yeah Thank you. I think it's coming out because I feel like there's a sense of trust with who you are and how patient you've been with me to, to get to this point where we're sharing that I feel like, Oh my gosh, you've, you've been so patient with me and, and I need to give you, I don't know, I need to make it a special thing. And I know in my mind, like these podcasts, somebody's out there listening and, and how can this be interesting for them? (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I appreciate this. This has been, yeah, just lovely so far. I'm, I'm, I'm loving every minute of it. So (laughs) this is great. (laughs) This is great. And I, I'd love for you too, to talk about, I know that traveling around the world and connecting with indigenous people around the world. That's a part of your practice. New Zealand, the Arctic, the Pueblo people, even to Russia. Can you talk about that experience and how that feeds you and your practice? It's interesting because again, as a young artist going through school, I always heard about residencies. I heard about different things that you could apply for and I would apply for those things. And for, I don't know, unknown reasons, like when you're starting out, you don't get selected for certain things. Mm-hmm. You don't get that residency. You don't get this certain thing. But I I went to the boarding school. I got there when I was 15. After that, before starting college, I went and lived in Mexico for a year and traveled around there. And I was selected in... I think it was 1987, the city of Berlin had their 750th birthday and they had students write in to like write an essay to see how they could be chosen for youth bridge to go to Berlin to celebrate the city's 750th birthday before the wall came down. And I was selected for the state of Arizona with another woman from Hopi and it was interesting because they had selected all these people from all across the U S and they'd realized organizers realized like they wanted a huge cross section of the U S and variety. And they were like, Holy crap, we're near the end of our States and we haven't selected any native Americans. So they said, we, that's how we chose you. And I was like, Oh, okay. So I was able to go to Berlin and see that city and experience that part of our history where before the wall came down and it was incredible. And I was also selected. There was a, there was 250 of us that were selected to go. And then 50, once we arrived there were selected to go to Sachsenhausen to see the concentration camp. And, and it just opened my eyes to a whole part of history that we hear about and see about and to be in a place like that was just incredible. And I've, so I guess what I'm trying to say is I've had all these experiences. Somehow, miraculously, these things happen. And then when I got into school and wanted to apply for residencies and do all these things, and I was 
too young and immature with maybe my work that I wasn't. So I don't know, for whatever reasons, it wasn't happening. I got to a point where I just got a little angry at the whole system. And I thought, you know what? Nobody uh, told me to go to Mexico. I just got a ticket and went there. And I had amazing experiences when I went to Germany and like, sure, I got this thing. But while I was there, there was no organization that made that happen. Like I, I was part of this program. But when I got there, it was what I did and what I, I seeked out to give me an experience. So, so I had this conversation with myself that, what the heck, why am I letting these residencies and these like awards or whatever control where I'm going? If I want to go to New Zealand, if I want to go to Australia, then I'm going to freaking get a job and go buy a plane ticket. And then I'm going to like use this thing called the internet and find people who are printmakers and artists, send them an email, contact them, use this thing called Facebook, connect with people and, and start to make it happen. I'm not going to wait anymore for these things. And if it takes, once I started teaching at the universities, if it teach, if it takes teaching a summer class to put all that money into travel and to going places instead of waiting for some grant or somebody to give me permission with accepting me, like it's, I'll be waiting forever. Yeah. And there's this whole other idea with academia that sometimes with certain things, there comes strings are attached. Like the university has ownership of different things you discover. The There are different colleagues who want to attach themselves to different projects as as an indigenous person at times people want access to indigenous community and when you do those things you're opening the door to strangeness and so Mm -hmm. I thought you know what if I'm working and teaching summer school and paying for it on my own I am in control of my project I'm in control of how long I stay there who I'm seeing where I'm going And I felt that was more empowering than waiting for acceptance from whoever is deciding who gets these things. And it placed me in this wonderful situation where I was able to choose where I was going. I also made this, I don't know, in my own mind, the places I wanted to go were where Indigenous people were at and are doing their thing not to the important places that are mainstream. Some of these residencies and different things that people are like, oh, you should get this one. You should get that one. It's really impressive. And I I, I didn't want to be there. I went Mm -hmm. from residencies and it was all about who was hooking up with what artists or who was doing this and that. And I just thought, I don't care. And I don't want to see all of that. I want to be within a native community, getting to know what's important to them, hearing their stories, meeting elders, meeting people in the community who are carrying on their traditional crafts and their traditional art forms and, and having an impact in their community that's positive. So if it takes teaching summer school, if it takes selling some of my work and saving it up to buy a ticket to some of these places, then heck, that's what I'm going to do. So As a result, I would go to these places and then I would teach a workshop, I would do something and then I would deliver. And I would, I I always say there's a power in over delivering. Hmm. You're going to do a workshop and you do it really well and you make sure people are, are content and happy and you show up on time. You, you do all those things that I guess breaking all the stereotypes of what people see artists as like undependable, unreliable, all like late all the time, all those different things. If you break those and you become reliable, you make the work, you don't have those excuses, then guess what? People talk about it and they want you back. They invite you and you go to amazing places. And then when you go to those places, you're not saying, what can this do for me? You're like, who's going to be washing the dishes and how can I make some food? How can I, we need gas. Let's go get gas for the van. Let's go take care of that. Like you pitch in and help. And guess what? People remember that Mm -hmm. you listen to everybody else. You contribute and 
lo and behold, people want you to come to these things. <laughs> so, so I always tell people when you go on these things or you make these things happen for yourself, like be a good person, mm-hmm. contribute and the invitations will come. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is amazing. I think just in, in the, in the art world, but I think the world in general, sometimes how much just like basic courtesy, basic best practices of, of, as you said, showing up on time, acting like you want to be there, being patient with people who are maybe like trying you a little bit in the workshop and like just showing up, you know, with that spirit of service first and not serving your ego first. It gets, people really remember it. Oh my God. Yes. And people are always like, Yazzie, you're such a brown noser. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm a helper and a contributor. (laughs) And I'm authentically excited about being in different places. And and I don't, I'll sometimes be invited as a visiting artist at places and they're like, what restaurant or place do you want to go to or this or that? And I'm like, uh, is there a Jimmy John's? Like, let's get sandwiches, mm-hmm. have a bag of bread for me and some cheese and some ham and I'll just make sandwiches and be in the studio. Like that's, and they're just like, well, we can do this or that. And I'm just like, I just, I just want to be with the studio and with whoever wants to be there with me. And if students sign up and want to help, great. And if they don't, they can go and they're like, well, they really should be here. I said, I only want to work with the ones who want to be here. I only want to be with those. And, and then what's always awesome when I do these things is the ones who show up and help and are there, like it just hits my heart. And then I'm like, hey, guess what? Gino from Knoxville, Tennessee, you are coming to Colorado. Mm -hmm. I'm paying for a round trip ticket for you to come spend a week or two with me in Colorado to help me make work with Tony Ortega. So, and then others are like, wow, how did so-and-so get invited? I said, guess what? So-and-so printed an edition of 30 in one night for me. Yeah. I didn't ask them. I didn't say do this or that. They offered it and wanted to be with me. And then I wanted to be with them more and I wanted to support them. And guess what? I'm a full professor at a research one university. I will freaking find the funds and fly you in. Mm-hmm. If you're interested, if you're helpful, and if you're community oriented and have a good heart. Yeah. So, so I always say to people, like, you just never know when it's going to come back around. So be positive, be upbeat, help people out. And I always try to tell my young ones in my class, I'm like, visiting artists is coming, like, be available, be whatever, because it will come back around. And this is the moment that we've been waiting for, for this person to come. So I know you have other classes. I know you have different things, but this is a really special moment. So part of my practice is trying to teach different people in a workshop, in my classroom, when I go different places is to be aware of, I don't know, when I grew up, we had to help with a lot of different things and that was really important. And so that that's something I'm always trying to drive home. And, and that's what's taken me to be in Alaska, to be um, invited to different Pueblos for different ceremonies, to be in Germany, to be in Japan, in Korea, to be invited back to New Zealand like eight or nine times, to spend time in Australia, three or four visits there, really working with community. And, and all those things that I thought were prestigious and wonderful that I wasn't accepted to, those were one week making a print, doing this one thing. I have lifelong relationships in all these places. And I can fly to any of these places and email or call someone and they will be at the airport to get me. That's great. And it's amazing. I love that. Yeah. And I tell people, and people are like, why? Like, it's because you're so well known. I'm like, no, because I'm nice. (laughs) I like to arrive in Auckland and I know where I want to go have a meat pie and I know who I want to do it Mm -hmm. with. And and they want to do it too. It's not about, oh, we're famous and we want to do No, it's like, we're famous. We're eating nice, good food and being together and and chilling in a good way and being respectful of each other. And, and I want to hear other people's stories. 
that that's something I think a lot of times that we forget is is the power of just listening and mm-hmm. being present and and asking little questions or maybe not even asking questions, just saying, "Hey, can I tear your paper? Hmm. Can I fix that ink for you? You haven't like you've been working and doing this. Why don't I run and get a sandwich for you? How do you want it?" That can be the most important question to an artist mm-hmm. is like, what, what can I go get you? And then bring it back and then sit with that person and just be with them. It's really powerful, those moments of, of being with somebody. And, and I think a lot of times we, we need to remember that. I, I think a lot of times people, I have people say, well, how did you meet this person or that person? And I said, I, I didn't even really start out trying to meet them. I was trying to find out about this thing and then it led into that. And then I wanted, I heard that they knew this person and I really wanted to know how they met each other. And then, and they said, wow, I thought you wanted to meet me for this or get an autograph. I'm like, no, I just, I know that you knew this person when they were younger and you guys were in school together and I wanted to see what that's about. And, and then we, all of a sudden, instead of like getting in with someone, like we're learning from each other and hearing each other and it becomes this really special place. And then all of a sudden, guess what happens? You become friends. Mm-hmm. And then your good friend says, Hey, come to the Canary Islands. And let's put an exhibit together. Oh, well, I can't do that. Oh, well, don't worry. So why don't you send your work and we'll put a solo exhibit of your work up in the Canary Islands. I was like, oh, okay. And then I've come into a point in time where somehow it comes up and then the exhibition works and and it's there. But that was never like my intent at times. It was really about just being with somebody. And how can we see each other more? Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, I really connect with what you said because part of my, my whole practice is getting stories from people and, and asking for their stories and sitting in presence and listening to them. And it is so powerful, I think, to hold space for someone to, to actively listen, particularly, I mean, I really believe, you know, now more than ever when like, how often are you talking to people? They're like, huh? You know, like looking like, like hold on, I just need to send this email. What? You know, like they're like they're looking. There's, we we're not with each other yes. in the same way that I think we evolved to be. And I think if you can show up for someone and give them your most precious non-renewable resource, which is your time and your yeah. attention, that is like the best way you can honor someone. I think. Yes. It, it doesn't cost anything. (laughs) It just just requires you to be quiet and present and and really like just be there. And and it's interesting because that's one of the lessons that's the hardest to get across to people at times. I, I say to people, they're like, what's the most important art tool or or advice you could give? And I'm like, give people your time and respect them and hear them and some people get it and are like in tune and it's wonderful and then some people are just like what and and I just say at some point it will hit you but it's and I said and if you're ever an experience where someone has done that for you it feels really beautiful so if you can do that for people it's it's wonderful and I think that's at the the basis of how I've been able to travel to a lot of different places is is just back to the basics. Yeah, absolutely. I'm hoping we can get a chance to talk about your practice as well in terms of the the content of it. You know, I know that it's been described as showing the complexities of how contemporary native people live. And, and of course, you've got a really strong iconographic practice. I'd just love to hear you speak to your, your imagery, your messages, and, and how it all kind of evolved to come through for you. Yeah, I think my, my work 
it comes from storytelling and and a lot of the images of women are self-portraits and I'm putting my experience into making those images of women of myself, of giving myself strength by planting a garden inside the figure of asking questions and then using the print process to put those little icons into the print that may speak to different things. Um, There's like this set of symbols that are ever changing in my work that represent prayers and sacredness, but it's not anything traditionally Navajo or it's, it's my own Melanie tradition of, of these icons and these images that I come up with that represent the sacred, that represent the things that we don't speak about in our community. And, and I'm putting it into the work. And what drives a lot of my work is my need to create beauty and, and harmony for myself, because I think living in this world that is so full of, of like difficult moments when I'm able to go to the studio, it calms my mind and calms how I walk in, in this world because I'm always challenged with being seen as the other. I mean, I, I may be a professor to research one university, but because I have brown skin when I walk on campus and I'm wearing my apron to class, people automatically think that I'm a grounds person or that I don't speak English and I get treated in this way that's different. And so by making my work, I'm healing myself and healing that pain of being different, of looking different. And then I'm also able to add all the other things into the work that when I'm doing an artist talk or a different thing, depending on how I'm reading the room or the group I'm with, I can unpack different parts of history or stories that relate to that group of people. And so all of these experiences, these histories, all of that lives within me. And I feel like I'm making a map to the way I want the world to be. And, and then I use the artwork and the symbols in it to help me tell different stories each time I speak about the work. And I've gotten to the point now I'm in my mid fifties and I'm comfortable with the fact that these, these things come from me and that they are valid because they come from my experience and that I'm using them to help myself and then help share these different histories. I think it took a while to get there because I think the the work has always looked very simple and basic and I fought against it a lot or didn't really give it the power that I felt that it has in my younger years, but I couldn't stop making it mm. the way I do. And then once I realized the power in it for myself, I, I start started to own it and, and, take it in different ways and make it into sculpture pieces, put it onto into jewelry pieces and other things that, that have a, a life of its own. And, and all of that, like, I remember once someone saying to me like, wow, now you're doing the sculptures, the jewelry and this, and you're really cashing out. And I said, it's not about that. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, the prints, the self portraits were about healing. I said, I had a scare with a possibility of having cancer. And I just, I made the work to give myself strength. And, and then I didn't have it. And then I thought, well, shoot, I could like this thing, the doctor said it was very in a late stage and I could have a little bit of time to live. And then somehow miraculously I was okay. And and then I thought, well, shoot, before I do go, maybe I should make some large sculptures so that yeah. people can have this image and thing in their garden with them. And then when I told the stories about my illnesses and different things I'd gone through, people said, well, I can't take a printer sculpture with me because I'm being diagnosed or they're figuring out what's happening with me and I wish I could carry something with me. And traditionally with Navajo people, like, I, I don't have my jewelry on now because I don't want it to make noise during the recording, but we were always wearing jewelry and the, the turquoise is like a healing stone. And when it's gifted to you, it, it gives you like 
this sense of honoring that it's given you it, when it's given to you, it holds this power of like a gift. And that gift in our community represents a healing and a protective thing. And so the jewelry for me represents that. And so when I spoke with Carrie Green at my gallery and we started figuring out ways to do the jewelry and the scarves, it was so that people who collect my work who are going through these difficult times could purchase something that would have a healing image and that they could wear the scarf. They could gift a piece of jewelry to a friend to give them hope and give them something to help them through a difficult time. And, and then when people hear that, they're like, Oh my gosh, like I said, it was, it's not about the money at all or like cashing out. I said, if I could do that, I wouldn't be teaching. Yeah. I like the work would be selling and, and I would be making my living that way. I said, and I could do that. But I don't want to do that. I enjoy the teaching aspect. I enjoy the rhythm of the seasons with my classes, with working with younger people. I'm giving back to community that way. And and this other stuff, the jewelry, the artwork that sells in my gallery, it's like frosting on everything else. And that extra income that comes then goes to buy a ticket to go back to New Zealand. It buys a ticket to go to another place in France to do a workshop with young people who have never met a Native American person. And, and my goal with a lot of these travels is, again, breaking stereotypes that people have of Native Americans, of being alcoholics, of not having their lives together, of like all these terrible things. And so when I go someplace, I'm like, I want to be present and I want to project a positive image of my community and, and, in that slow, quiet way, I'm I'm protesting and I'm an activist to the stereotypes that my community lives with by trying trying hard every day to be doing the right thing and a good thing that helps. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's actually I I spent a, a summer in Kanta on the reservation. Oh, I love it. Oh, it was, it was, yeah, yeah. It was, it was a really incredible experience. And I just remember this was, I mean, more than 10 years ago, but even then having that, those conversations with the people who live there, because Kanta, it's got, it's got the gas station. It's at this, this crossroads. If you're heading to Monument Valley, you have to turn there. And so they get a lot of tourists coming through, a lot of people coming through. And, you know, that casual and not so casual racism and prejudice that people would face for people coming through and just they didn't talking to a Native American person for the first time and what they bring with them. I mean, it can be so harmful and 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 so present. And it's one of those I think those things that people sometimes, I think when like they're, they're, they live, let's say, in, in sort of privileged circles in academia, in spaces where people do try to be very conscious and pe- play spaces where people are doing land acknowledgements and, and talking about reparations and doing all these things, I think they can forget or we can forget how the other 99% of people are not doing that. And they're still bringing what they saw on Saturday morning cartoons to interactions with real people and real cultures. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how that's ever present because I, and I, again, I think people who are in academia or are in certain circles at times when I meet people are, they're just like, Oh, are you still talking about that stuff? Like that's mm-hmm. so the eighties or whatever. I said, I wish it was. Yeah. I wish it was. I wish I could tell you that this week I didn't walk into a store and get followed and ask if I speak English or like there's, I I said, I live with that all the time. And those of us who look differently, we live with that. And until it doesn't happen, I will continue to do workshops. I will continue to speak about um, what it is like coming from my community and and even within my community, we I have different people who are native who are like, oh, you're not from home anymore. You live 
off the reservation and this. And I'm like, well, I still grew up there and that's still part of my history and who I am. And, and I'm going to share it. And, and it's interesting because at times when I've run into people who are like, you don't know what being at home is like. And then I share different parts of my life. They're just like, Oh my gosh, you do know. And we Mm -hmm. thought you speak English really well, or you're teaching at a university. We thought you had no idea, but you do understand and know. And I said, yep. And I've, I've been to a lot of other places in this world and I'm searching out other indigenous people. And I may be in Russia in a place that has electricity, but no running water, but I know how to siphon water from a drum and put it into a bucket. And then I know how to prepare a fish or butcher and build a fire and, and people always think, oh my God, you, do, you don't do any of that. Like you seem like you want all the comforts of life. I said, yes, I want all the comforts of life. <laughs> yeah. I love AC. I love all these different things. But if I had to, I can go back out with nothing and do all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's a really hard life. Like when they showed images during COVID and there was different Navajo people delivering water to different people and trying to like just have water. Mm-hmm. And people were like that. I didn't realize that happened. I said, yes, I, I feel like a coward at times because I teach in academia and I'm not back at home, but back at home is hard. It's, it's so hard. And so when I, I think of like, wow, academia is really hard. And I think, no, it's not like not mm-hmm. having water, not having a job, all of those different things of home are very difficult. Living living with different things that are at home is really hard and not having the proper counseling to help people in our community deal with alcoholism, to deal with domestic violence, to have services for our animals to get spayed and neutered. That's really hard. So I tell people at times, like they'll say, academia is hard. And and I I complain and I'm like, oh, it's really hard. But then I have to sit down and remember and think like, I could be out in K-Town right now without gas and Mm -hmm. walking to find a gas tank to get a ride into town and then get back out to that dirt road to fill up the tank and and along the way think I should have brought water. Like, why did I forget to put two gallons of water in the truck with me this morning? That could be, that's a hard day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, I, I remember all those things of home of chopping wood, of delivering wood to different places. My Good friends at Hopi, I used to take the sheep manure so they could make their pottery and visit with them. And the big goal for the day was to find somebody who was selling watermelons or making sure there is cantaloupe or that type of stuff at the store that I could take them out at Hopi land. What seems really normal and simple for a lot of us out in some of these regions can be like such a big gift. I I remember somebody once was like, I'm going to go to the res. Like, what should I take to your family? I said, don't freaking bring flowers. <laughs> I said, like, here in the city or wherever, like, you bring flowers to people, that's nice. But if you're going out there, you better bring a sack of potatoes, a big mm-hmm. thing of coffee, some flour to make bread. Like, bring them in necessities to make a meal or do something. Like, I remember when people bring my mom flowers, she was like, oh, first of all, I'm allergic to flowers. And like, (laughs) what am I going to do with this? Like, you just wasted a good 50, 40 bucks on nice flowers that are wilted because you bought them in Gallup or Albuquerque. And it takes a couple of hours to get here. And and like, flowers are beautiful. But at times in some of our, where I come from, the essentials of making a meal are really important. So, so I tell people at times, like, get to know where you're going and what they value and bring that as a gift. Because, again, and it's those types of things that I carry with me when I 
go to these different places in the world is I, I watch, I sit quietly, I see what they like to eat. I see. And then when I can, I'll go get the chicken or I'll get the, the meat or the vegetable or the thing and bring it to them. Mm-hmm. And people are like, you could have brought your art. I'm like, yeah, but we can share this food together. Mm. And that's, that's something that's very human and very basic, but beautiful. And, and that can take you at a lot of places. Oh, that's lovely. I feel like that's like the perfect note to wrap up on for this wonderful (laughs) conversation. Where can people find you online and and see your work? Um, You can Google Melanie Yazzie and go to the Glenn Green Galleries website. That has a lot of my stuff. And then I work at the University of Colorado at Boulder. My email is there. So they can just go to the art department on the University of Colorado website and find Yazi and send an email. <laughs> um, but I, it's funny because there there is a Facebook thing and an Instagram thing, but my gallery, Carrie Green, runs that. And so people are always like, oh, we sent you a message. And I said, oh. I, I, don't, I don't ever get those. Like every now and then I'll send them a picture to post, but I don't read them. I don't check it. They do it to just have activity and so that people can see where I'm at, but I I don't I don't do it. So <laughs> So email. Email is the way to email, go then. Yeah, it's good to it's know. Weird because people think that's really slow now, but I do check my email and I do respond. And if I can get into it this morning, I think right. I got out of school. <laughs> and I thought, holy crap, I got all my email at school and now I'm locked out and I'm using a school computer and I'm just like kind of stuck. But it usually is the best way to, to get a hold of me and find me. And Beautiful. I just, I mean, that's how we connected. Worked for yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I always tell people just because they're like, don't you have a website or this? And I saw the gallery, but you have other works. And I'm like, just put Melanie Yazzie and, on Google and then push images and it'll show you a bunch of stuff. And then capture it, send me an image, ask me a question about it. I said, I just, I'm at that point in my life where, well, I've been at this point in my life for years now where invitations and things come. And if people want me, they'll invite me and not make me go to cafe and fill out. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I've never had to do that and I'm not ever going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) And why should you? Yeah. (laughs) I know. I'm always like, you're going to lose out on a lot of opportunities, Yazzie. And I say to them, my resume is over. 70 pages long. I haven't missed out on anything. <laughs> You're like, I've, I've had an opportunity or two. Thank you. <laughs> I've had plenty and they don't stop coming. And, and that's wonderful and amazing. And I'm grateful and so grateful for that. But it all comes with hard work. And, mm-hmm. and I was able to do it just with email. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, I, I love sharing and talking and I hope those of you who are listening have enjoyed this. If if there's misunderstandings or questions, you can email me and we can talk more. I'm always open to that. And I just wish everybody a super amazing studio day and art making time. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, thank you so much. This has been such a treat. And thank you for doing these. Is it podcasts? Is that what you call it? Yeah. Podcasts because I think... I don't know. People I know have said really wonderful things about it. And that's why I was like, oh, I think I want to do that. Okay. It's been a while to get us to, to do it because I'm, I'm so, I don't know, standoffish about this. But <laughs> then we finally got it to work and it's exciting. Yeah. I'm so excited to share this conversation. So yeah. Thank you again. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor Timothy Pauschak digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week where my guests will be Lauren Rosenblum and Christina Weil, curators of the exciting exhibition, A Model Workshop, Margaret Lohengrund and the Contemporaries. 
This will be on exhibition at the Print Center New York from September 21st to January 23rd. Lohengrin was the first woman to open her own printmaking studio in the United States, a visionary leader, organizer, and critic within the mid-20th century New York printmaking community, and a driving force behind the revival of artistic lithography. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. 